2: Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS. Alongside me is professional pronunciation guru Thea Lenaduzzi. Thea? Hello. How are you?
3: I'm okay. I feel like my pronunciation might come in handy today.
2: Do you know what? I think that's (laughs) very fair because there's a Spanish name I'm about to say with three syllables and the question will be, do I go for it full Spanish or embarrassed english i
3: think full spanish
2: but we know we're gonna end i'm gonna end up i think you can do it. okay you go full spanish i'll go embarrassed english and we'll see which sounds better Uh, if you want to subscribe to the tls do google tls subscriptions type pod one in the offer code section you can get six issues for six pounds coming up on the show this week there are few plights more pitiable than that of the wrongfully convicted prisoner Indeed, we should probably pity the rightfully convicted prisoner, too, who may be punished too severely for an arbitrary offence or be himself the victim of societal misfortune. However you look at it, the justice system in America, as over here, deserves our scrutiny and attention. It has got it this week with a wide-ranging essay by Leslie Jameson, who also shares her own correspondence with three prisoners. She'll be on the phone to tell us more. Here it goes. Federico Garcia Lorca...
3: I think that was that was that was admirable.
2: Go on, how would you say? It?
3: Federico Garcia Lorca. It's, it was basically the same. It's
2: not the same. It's <laughs> nice of you to say so, but I, mean, I just I just sound it's not right. Anyway, he, he, you say the name again, Theo.
3: Federico Garcia Lorca. A
2: lovely. It's where he's well known. <laughs> However you say it, as a modernist avant-garde poet and playwright of Spain, this week in the TLS we celebrate his proficiency in the Japanese poetic form of the haiku, those short, distilled poetic miniatures, just five syllables, followed by seven syllables, then five syllables. That last bit was a haiku, for example. Paul Chambers, himself a haiku poet, has translated some of Lorca's poems for the first time.
3: A new collection of stories, Anatomy of Innocence, Testimonies of the Wrongfully Convicted, is a strange proposition, a slim anthology co-edited by Leslie Klinger, who defines himself as the world's first consulting Sherlockian, and a lawyer-turned-author-turned-humanitarian, Laura Caldwell. The project is billed as a unique collaboration pairing real-life former convicts with best-selling mystery and thriller writers such as Lee Child and Sarah Paretsky. The idea seemingly is to shed light on the experiences of the wrongfully convicted and indeed in doing so to indirectly enact some further absolution. Every one of the innocent prisoners can be exonerated over and over again by every reader, says the American writer Leslie Jameson in an essay in this week's TLS. So what is the writer's role in the process? What are the moral implications of bringing the thrills and chills of genre writing to social justice issues? And what if the convict isn't innocent at all, but guilty? What do we even mean by those terms? All questions to put to Leslie Jameson, who joins us on the phone from New York now. Hello, Leslie. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. Hello. My pleasure. I mean, there's a strong personal dimension to this essay. It's right there from the very first line. So how did you, how did you come to be in touch with three convicts?
1: Uh, Well, each relationship was a little bit different, but they all had something to do with writing and telling stories, which is why they felt relevant to the discussion of this anthology, which is all about the project of how to tell the story of incarceration. Um, And my three relationships, uh, one of them was a profile I was writing about a man who was incarcerated in West Virginia for mortgage fraud, and another was a... convict I was working with on editing portions of a uh, diary that he had kept while he was in solitary confinement at what's called a supermax prison in Illinois that thankfully has been shut down since the years he spent there and um, but we were he had kept this incredible and harrowing and very long diary and um, so I was helping him edit it and we wanted to publish it we eventually did publish it um, as a Kind of testimony from the inside of what incarceration felt like. Um, and my third correspondent was a, a man who was incarcerated at Sing Sing. And uh, I was a, a mentor. That was the word for our relationship that was bestowed by the nonprofit that was facilitating it. But basically, he would send me letters and writing and I would offer him thoughts and feedback. Um, So each of the relationships had a slightly different catalyst and a slightly different structure, but they were all about storytelling in some way.
3: And so you understand, obviously, the competing impulses uh, that might be at work in a project of this sort.
1: Absolutely. And I think part of the impulse to talk a little bit about my own story was I wanted to implicate myself in all of the dynamics that I was describing or observing or thinking about. Um, And I guess I would also say that I think the project of the anthology is a pretty incredible one and certainly a really meaningful one. Pretty much any project that sheds light on the huge, horrifying scale of incarceration, I think is worthwhile because it's it's there and we need to keep thinking and talking about it and seeing it.
2: And it's kind of made manifest by the use of thriller writers, isn't it? Because it absolutely brings to the to the forefront the notion that the idea of being wrongfully imprisoned is such a, it's a literary and filmic staple, but it's also the great fear that we all harbour when we can't sleep at night. What would happen if coincidence led you to a position where you were wrongfully convicted of a crime? Should we apologise for these stories being titillating or entertaining, or, or should we welcome the fact that that means they're more easy to, to think about?
1: I mean, I think it's uh, worthwhile to be kind of wise to the ways in which we might be entertained by suffering, even as we're horrified by it. But I also think there's something that can be incredibly useful about engaging people in stories that they might otherwise be too horrified or saddened by to engage with. I think there's a kind of almost a genre Trojan horse effect where like you come into a story because it's compelling, because there's a kind of narrative drama, all the things that thrillers and procedural dramas offer, and then you sort of get, once you're inside the story, you're there, you're immersed, you're engaged, and you're kind of vulnerable to feeling the full weight of its implications. I'm teaching a course right now in Columbia called Regarding the Pain of Others, and a lot of what we're talking about is how... It's such a time-honored tradition in social exposés to also have this kind of narrative volume ratcheted up, like yeah. you know, old-time journalists like Nellie Bly pretending to be insane so that she could go into an asylum on Blackwell's Island. Like it was totally pegged as like a a thriller when it was serialized in the newspapers when she was doing that at the turn of the century. So um, I definitely <laughs> think there's a value there as well.
3: Well, it's interesting because the the assumption from from the get-go with this um, anthology is that readers can empathise with the wrongfully convicted individual. And they seem to then draw a line there as though to, to suggest that one could empathise with a rightfully com- convicted individual, whatever that means, it would be a step too far. And in that sense, that's that's one of the many ways, I think, in which this you, you're, you're suggesting the anthology is a missed opportunity.
1: I think it's important to ask that question. Why do we... First of all, who is we? <laughs> if we're assuming that we is a set of non-incarcerated readers, why is it that that we would necessarily be able to or should be able to identify more readily with the wrongfully accused than quote-unquote rightfully accused, yeah. um, the kind of being haunted by dreams of, of being wrongfully incarcerated. I think that's very true. Um, But I also know that my own dreams are actually more about having committed a crime than being wrongfully. Like the, the horrible thing that I've often dreamed about is that I actually did something. Um yeah. And I think that there's, there's a kind of contingency there that I think is worth recognizing. Like- well,
2: that would be more daring, wouldn't it? I mean, to, if you if you use all the skills of a novelist to create empathy, not for someone who is wrongfully imprisoned, because that's very black and white and straightforward. Uh, you feel sorrow and then you feel uh, pleasure when the narrative knot is loosened and the person is freed. How much more interesting to use someone's powers of empathy and projected empathy to make us consider the plight of someone who might be in prison because of all sorts of societal decisions made outside of their ken or even because they've just done a bad thing once that's a more daring place to be potentially
1: yeah i think that that gray zone is is kind of where we all need to be living and and really connects back to to thea's question about um what what do i feel the limits of the anthology were and and i think in a way i mean i don't know if i'd call it a missed opportunity i think it has fulfilled the call of what it is. And that's a useful call. I just think that focusing too narrowly on wrongful conviction as the thing wrong with the justice system totally misses the larger thing wrong with the justice system, which is the the scale and scope of mass incarceration, which is all about systemic racism and mass surveillance and a number of people who have done the thing that they were convicted of doing but there're much larger and more in question like more important questions that work about well what is the culture in which they committed that crime what is the prison sentence they're receiving for that crime um, and so all of that just to me makes the central question not really about is somebody innocent or is somebody guilty? But um, how is it that we're conceiving of what guilt is and how are we responding to that guilt?
3: There's a line in your piece which I think sums a lot of that up where you say um, that we need to acknowledge all narratives as fallen. Mm.
1: That that line is also a way of linking up a couple of different threads in the piece. And one is about can we broaden our sense of who has been done an in injustice by the justice system to not just include the wrongfully accused. um, But also, how can we broaden our sense of what authentic narrative might look like? um, Because I'm, I'm interested in, initially, I was kind of resistant to the way that the anthology seemed to be these professional authors speaking for the incarcerated. But, you know, the more I thought about it, the more I also felt like it was wrong footed, to try to draw some binary between, like authentic narratives in the first person told by the people who experience them, and narratives sort of told by some external force. Like even when we're telling our own story, how we're telling that story is a product of everything we've lived, everything we've been taught, um, every institution we've come into contact with. So saying all narratives are fallen is also a way of saying every narrative is the the product of so many different veins of influence
3: and in, in on on that point you you juxtapose the the new book the anthology with a much older one um which i had never heard of um the life and the adventures of a haunted convict can you can you tell us how you how you came to hear about that book what is it and what does it add to our understanding of of all of these issues that are at stake
1: yeah it's a pretty incredible story of that book it's the um so it's a an autobiographical narrative um by a man named Austin Reed who was a uh, an African-American man who was incarcerated in the Auburn State Penitentiary in New York in the 19th century, and it's the earliest known, the earliest known authenticated um, manuscript account of incarceration by an African-American in the States, and it was discovered at an estate sale in Rochester, New York, just really as as a kind of a pile, a bound manuscript, it was never published in Austin Reed's lifetime in the 19th century, And I came to hear about it actually because one of my I did my PhD at Yale and studied with a professor there named Caleb Smith who um, was the man who the scholar who authenticated the manuscripts and brought it out into the world. Um, And part of why it felt relevant to this piece was, first of all, this question of like who does who? Who has the justice system wronged? And it's not just people who are innocent. Austin Reed wasn't innocent of many of the crimes he was accused of. Um, but to me, the fact that he was guilty doesn't mean he wasn't wronged by many, many systems under which he lived, including you know, his years of incarceration. So I was kind of asking this question, well, what are the other stories we need to pay attention to uh, that aren't just stories of the quote-unquote innocent? And I wanted to use his story because it felt like... Um, an example of a lot of things. It felt like an example of a, a first person story that was working in very consciously a lot of different genres. Part of why his book is fascinating is that he kind of moves between the genre of the temperance sermon, the genre of the outlaw ballad, the genre of the sensational novel. Um, so it's it's a different sense of, okay, what is his authentic voice? Um, and also that, He's a man who's both wronged and guilty. Um, And that felt like an important story to tell as well.
2: Uh, Just finally, what was the politics around incarceration now uh, in the US? And I suppose the the, the, the US of Donald Trump. Are we seeing in any way a rejection of mass incarceration? Or is it now just become so established within American culture that it's just part of part of the societal structure that feels like it will last for a long time?
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess two different things to say on that. I think that um, one of the many reasons that Trump's election um, feels like uh, uh, kind of a horrifying thing for our country is that his approach to uh, questions of guilt, incarceration, punishment um, feels pretty much completely opposite to the direction that I and many people I think would like to see our country go in. Um, And I think that his his failure to recognize the ways in which the system simply doesn't work. I mean, he's not alone in that misrecognition, but now he's in a position of power. That said, I think there are a lot of um, incredible advocates and voices and and movements in this country that do recognize what's wrong with mass incarceration. And I write briefly in the piece about a woman named uh, Danielle Sered, who runs an organization called Common Justice, um, which is just one example, but a really powerful example of Um, a restorative justice organization that's um, trying to really implement alternatives to incarceration that think about how to help people reckon with their crimes and atone for their crimes, um, but really thinking outside of the prison model. So I I do want to say that I think those voices and those movements are here. It's just a question of giving them the kind of audience and force that they need.
3: And One can imagine a very different anthology um, growing up from all of that, perhaps. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's been lovely to speak to you, Leslie. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you for having me. All the best.
2: Uh, we shouldn't be too proud that we have a better system here. I mean, we have, I was looking at the figures for this. We now, in, we now imprison 86,000 people in Britain and 30 years ago, it was 40,000. Mm. And so there has just been this acceptance. There's that piece by Clive Stafford Smith ages ago, which mm. talks about he was kind of optimistic, maybe, that we would have less incarceration. But the movement for the last 30 years has been more and more and more. And they want to build more and more prisons.
3: Mm, and also it, it, it's more and more and more, but it also can be traced back to earlier and earlier and earlier in a person's life with the uh, police forces in, in schools, especially in the, in America.
2: Are oh, you think there's a criminalisation of children? Yeah,
3: it seems to happen much earlier. So I don't really see how one could, you know, how the latter could stop you could have fewer prisons while criminalizing from a younger and younger age
2: the problem is if you think about these things in terms of cause and effect you're always going to end up in a situation where a lot of crime is committed not because of the person's inherent badness it's because of various circumstances beyond their control
3: and also how you define a crime
2: yeah but i mean that's for probably a very different set of thoughts you'd have and when you're not the victim of the crime compared to if you are the victim of the crime if someone mugs you in the street, you will think differently to someone who just thinks, well, what's the societal cause of poverty and desperation yeah. and, and poor parenting and poor lack of role models? You can think in a very complex way. And then maybe when you experience a crime, you it, it boils down to... I guess to so.
3: But simple. I mean, that's talking about mugs that happen, uh, mugging that happens in in a street. If, if you're talking about things that happen in, in schools in America, say, uh, where, you know, slightly naughty behaviour, behaviour that would have perhaps uh, led to detention... Is now, depending on who commits the in inverted commas crime, it it becomes, it escalates and it becomes a disturbance and and they get taken away and And it's prosecuted. And it becomes a criminal offence as opposed to just being naughty in school.
2: Yeah, it's a right mess, isn't it?
4: (laughs) To sum up. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Another another fine
2: conclusion by me. It's a right mess, (laughs) but true nonetheless. Federico Garcia Lorca remains well known for his plays and poems at a time of great experimentation in European literature, the modernist period, and the bloody end of his life at the beginning of the Spanish Civil War. In the 1920s, he came into contact with the Japanese genre of the haiku, which was beginning to come to prominence as a piece of exotica in Spanish literary circles. At the time, Lorca was also interested in the Andalusian folk lyric form called the copla, which, like the haiku, represented a distillation of great subjects into a small space, a three- or four-line stanza. In 1921, Lorca composed a ten-poem haiku sequence dedicated to his mother, which he sent to her as a birthday present. Paul Chambers, himself a haiku poet of note, has translated this sequence for the first time and joins Thea and me. Paul, welcome.
5: Welcome, thank you very much.
2: Perhaps we might hear some of the poetry. Is that OK? Could you read us a bit of, uh, of, of Lorca and, and, and your translation?
5: Well, I mean, they're quite an interesting set of poems, really. And I'm not sure to, I guess, a trained ear, you might consider them haiku themselves. But I'll give a couple that I think maybe... Yeah, we'll get into the that. Spirit we'll, of haiku.
2: we'll get into that poem. That's a really interesting point, what constitutes a haiku and what doesn't. So let, let's, let's hear a couple of them and then, and then we can talk.
5: Well, the first one of the set is May my heart be yours, The moon on the water And the cherry tree in flower and that's followed by, there is a star over your house, there is a star, o infinite night. Why
2: did the haiku form, or what felt like the haiku form, become attractive to, to Spanish literati in the 1920s?
5: Uh, well, look, it talks kind of around this period about poets, if you like, of, of his generation, uh, pruning and caring for the over-luxuriant lyrical tree inherited by those poets by um or from romanticism and post-romanticism okay. and i think there's the kind of i think as you said in your introduction the distillation of emotional high points into this kind of very precise and taut and concentrated uh, lyrical form is kind of a a reaction to that over-luxuriant um, lyrical tree and i think it kind of signals a shift between uh, if you like from imagination to insight so um, moving against adding a picture to a fact, and more so trying to break through the, the outer crust of a fact to its spiritual core or, it, or its heart. And I think that a uh, haiku along the same lines as the copula, um works in that kind of a way. Um, does Lorca
2: write authentic
5: haikus?
2: Is there such a thing as, a, as an authentic haiku? I mean, because the traditional thing is to say, oh, it's five syllables and seven syllables and five syllables. But um, yeah. is that right?
5: Uh, no, that isn't right. Um, it, it's a difficult one really because there's a lot that's kind of misappropriated through translation. Um, so the five-seven-five rule is just a rough approximation that doesn't really match up to the Japanese form. Uh, but I mean at the time the was writing these haikus is 1921. There isn't really the academic or scholarly if you like framework for what constitutes a more of a genuine haiku. And in a letter to his brother Francisco, when he writes these poems, um, in which he encloses this haiku sequence, he describes them as the very latest novelty, as a little, a little box of lyrical chocolates, um, humoristic lyrical poems. You know, it's very much novelty at this point.
3: Is that also part of the appeal, do you think? The fact that they, they didn't have a scholarly apparatus around them and they, they had um, the haikus. That you, I, in your piece, you mentioned that they've sort of born from a collaborative, often anonymous thing, uh, very, very folk, very much based in the folk tradition and, and the poor. Was that part of the appeal?
5: Yeah, I think it would have been, actually. Yeah, I think um, something that if, if you're crossing over tonight to say comparison to the copla, I think the primitiveness of it um you know it's a distinctly kind of rural tradition if you like in a lot of senses um it's kind of intimate and anonymous kind of cry of pain and longing um I think that is part of the novelty yeah that you don't have such a rigid framework as perhaps you do kind of writing haiku much later when it's um, more established academically
2: Is that the haiku spirit that you talk about in in the piece a sense of trying to remove yourself from frippery and ornamentation and excrescence and, and to try and say this, you know, you're not adorning anything, you're simply trying to reveal something as it is.
5: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's that kind of the, the lyrical precision, if you like. There isn't any sense of moralising or any kind of didactic attitude in them. It's purely the, the image itself, the moment that you're trying to capture as profoundly, truthfully as you possibly can. Um, and yes, I think that's kind of an appeal to Lorca when he, he likens the two forms to distilling the highest points or the highest points of emotional life into two or three lines. Um, and I think it's just that kind of that power of, of lyric compression, or poetic distillation that really carries the power of, of both the haiku and the, the flamenco lyric.
3: You mentioned the flamenco lyric there. So that's what, what were the main, kind of the main overlaps or sympathies between the haiku and, in fact, the coppola, which you've mentioned a few times, and, and the flamenco form? What were the main similarities?
5: Well, I, the three kind of, if you like, um, core principles or core elements of Buddhist metaphysics would be that life is transient, life is contingent, and life is suffering. And I think really those three themes that you find so prominently in the haiku. Overlap into both the lives, the spirit, the form, the content of the, the folk lyric. Um, and it, it, Lorca kind of distinguishes between um, the cante hondo, which is the, the deep song, and what we might know now call flamenco. And he traces cante hondo back to the Orient and um, kind of the, the, metric, the musical metrics and forms of India that was brought by gypsies from India to Andalusia in the 15th century. And he kind of guides people, if you like, back to that, away from the more commercialized forms of, of flamenco. And that kind of I guess he acts at this point almost like a, a folklorist, like a, yeah. an Alan Lomax kind of a figure, where he's, he's really trying to rescue this form, this pure form, from what he sees as the adulteration of it in cafes and theaters, in, in the form of more commercial flamenco.
2: What what's the relationship did he have with his mother? Why did he send these poems to her? It seems like quite a pivotal relationship in his life. What was he doing there, do you think?
5: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he absolutely adored his mother from anything I could understand from his, kind of his biography, if you like. And I think he very much credits his mother with his artistic sentiment. And I think this idea of this lyrical box of chocolates and sort of celebrating her in the most, as he says, most modern and exquisite way possible, is very reflective of this love and kind of adoration and, and gratitude that he has for his mother. And throughout the haiku, he devotes his heart to her, his tears for her, this kind of um, imagery of Andalusia that he kind of offers to her. And there's very much this sense of, of longing for her, I think. Because uh, when he writes these, he's in uh, the Residencia, so the, the kind of the living quarters, if you like, of the university in Madrid. And there's always references to her and also to the family home in granada that i re i think really reflects this sense of longing and um idealizing if you like of, of his mother
3: his hometown figures in a very specific way doesn't it, it he has this this lovely definition of its diminutive uh, role
5: of of granada its of south.
3: granada yeah tell us how that figures in the poems yeah i mean
5: there's very much um like a focus if you like on the family home itself so he talks about the drawer of the carving table in the family dining room. Um, he talks about the star being over the house in Granada. Um, and even to his little sister Isabelle, too, he mentions in the poems, too. Um, but Granada is a really kind of um, intense aesthetic reflection, if you like, of his own personality. And I think something that he draws attention to in his writings about Granada are the kind of the links to the Islamic culture that reigned in Granada for, what, 700 years. And I think there's times when he almost says that it was almost criminal that the Catholics, if you like, ousted the the, Islam- you know, the Muslims from Granada. And that sense of a, a lost culture and uh, an elegance and a beauty to Islamic culture is something that he still perceives, I think, in Granada, especially in things like the Alhambra Palace or the waterways or the Islamic neighbourhood of the Albaycin. There are all these traces, if you like, of this kind of lost culture that he somehow traces back to this kind of um, distant voices or distant landscapes in the the kante Honda lyrics of the flamenco. Uh,
2: Before we go, uh, Paul, tell us your own experience of of writing haikus. It's an interesting form because I suspect lots of people at some point have dashed out a particularly inelegant haiku just because the 575 format in in English is rather easy to do. What's what's it like actually writing them? How how, do you go about doing it?
5: well um, it, it 's a difficult thing, and uh, I think there has to be a shift away from from that idea of the five seven five format and there has to be much more focus on the spirit of the haiku um, and again it's it 's kind of this idea of the transient and the solitariness if you like of life but one way of describing haiku i would say it 's kind of the art of noticing, and uh, I think that 's a wonderful thing to develop and to cultivate in our lives i think um with you know the onset of digital technology we our kind of um appetite for culture or engagement or stimulation is so immediate for us that i worry that sometimes you lose that sense of developing the art of of noticing the things around us and i think haiku actually the the craft of writing it um, can take you deeper into connections with nature or each other or our own experiences and it can really kind of nourish and um develop your sense of um, contingency, if you like, with, with your surroundings, and it's uh, it can be a very rewarding experience.
2: Could we hear one of yours? I, I, we didn't plan this, but I'm just interested. To, did you have any of yours to hand that we could we could hear?
5: Uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, I've got a couple that I've written in Granada, but i have travelling there myself, so perhaps that might be that fitting. That's like, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Lovely. Yeah. Uh, so uh, one I wrote there was Cicada Plain Song. The sun lingers. In the olive field. Lovely. So that's one from there again. So I guess you still get that sense of three lines, if you like. But um, yeah, it's not the, the five-seven-five that people think kind of defines the form. It's much more about capturing that that sense of a fleeting moment or a, a transient, if you kind of experience that has some universal relevance or implications for other people in sharing that moment. Give us one more. You've got another one. Yeah. Okay. Um, Freeing itself of itself, the thawing stream. That's and a, that's a Welsh one. That's, that's, a
2: Welsh that's a Welsh one. That
3: sounded Welsh. <laughs> yeah, that's, good, that's good, to, it's good,
2: to, good to finish on that. Paul James, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very thank much Henry. That's lovely, isn't it?
3: Well, you get that sense of, as Lorca puts it, it says, a momentary burst of inspiration, the blush of all that is truly alive, the trembling of the moment, and then a long silence.
2: Yeah. And actually, they were lovely. I mean, it, it, I can imagine it's very hard to write. Because in a sense, because almost anything can be a haiku. If you just stop in the popular imagination, just because you, you do a sentence and if you cut it off at a certain point, yeah. it will sound like a haiku. Yeah. Writing a one that feels authentic, as they did actually. Well, like and
3: and so, mu- so much of it is in the framing. And it's interesting in the piece how um, Paul... Uh, refers back to the tradition from which the haiku um, originates which was a collaborative process where poets would sort of take it in turn to supply verses so they might be haiku like short brief imagistic uh, bursts but they would then be followed by another and another and they would build into a, a longer piece.
2: I, this is oddly restful things to read and, it is, to, and I, to, to, to listen to i, I feel so, there's a sort of spiritual washing going on here i feel
3: yeah i can only imagine that that's why the haiku or haiku like verse has been so appealing to so many poets from so many different uh times and, and places from obviously the imagists and ezra pound had his famous uh flirtation with the haiku and yeah. amy lowell jack kerouac you know they're quite different. <laughs> they are,
2: but in fact, a lot of the definition of haiku, we've just been going through, could be a definition of poetry generally. The idea of, sort of the trembling of the moment and the, the notion of distillation and you know the best words placed in the best order. That this sort of traditional idea of poetry is about selection. And, yeah,
3: honing and, and honing and, and, and essentials
2: honing. and yeah, yeah. whittling. Honing ha- and honing. 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 I thought that was, that was yeah. Honing the image. Yeah, whittling. <laughs>
3: whittling. I,
2: I, love the, I love the word. I love the word Whittling. Whittling. Lovely. Well, that was that was that was Paul Chambers with some Lorca poetry and his own poetry as well. That's all we've got time for this week. Thanks to Paul Chambers and to Leslie Jameson. Do go to the-tls.co.uk to see this week's edition of the TLS, which is a smorgasbord of European thinkers and writers. Freud, Habermas, stop staring at me to check my pronunciation, Thea, Doblin, Vallejo, how would you say that? Um, Vallejo Vallejo I know you would and more we do try to celebrate (laughs) our cultural connection to the continent whatever might be going on in the political world next week we have a film special in the paper so best pretentious black trousers and roll necks on until then from Thea and from me goodbye